Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for the final time this week. It's Friday the 8th of September. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China has ordered officials at central government agencies to not use iPhones and other foreign branded devices for work. Employees at some Chinese central government regulators received instructions to stop bringing such gadgets into the office, according to the Wall Street Journal. And Bloomberg News reported Thursday that China plans to expand the ban on the use of iPhones in sensitive departments to government-backed agencies and state-owned enterprises. Apple dominates the high-end smartphone market in the country and counts China as one of its biggest markets, relying on it for about 19% of its overall revenue. China reported Thursday another monthly decline in imports and exports, albeit less steep than expected. Exports from China dropped 8.8% year-on-year in August after a 14.5% plunge in July. This was the fourth straight month of decline in exports amid weakening global demand. And imports to China declined by 7.3% year-on-year in August, compared with market estimates of a 9% drop and after a 12.4% plunge a month earlier. Imports have now fallen every month in 2023 from the year-ago period due to persistently weak domestic demand. President Joe Biden aims to seize on the absence of Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin at this week's Group of 20 leaders meeting in New Delhi to make fresh inroads with countries that China and Russia have previously courted. He hopes to forge closer ties with nations such as Brazil, South Africa, Indonesia and summits host India that are eager for closer ties with China and have declined to take sides after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Eurozone growth was weaker than initially estimated in the second quarter, according to revised official figures from Eurostat, the EU's statistics office. Eurozone GDP expanded just 0.1% Q-on-Q in the three months to June, revised lower from initial estimates of a 0.3% gain. And growth in Germany, which is the Eurozone's largest economy, stalled, and industrial production fell 0.8% there, hit by a sharp decline in car-making. On today's programme, I'm joined by John Schofield, Managing Director of Tempest Investments and Sunil Kashap, Director of FinMet. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll also find my daily newsletter with a lot more information on today's business and finance stories from around Asia. <laughs> U.S. equities tilted to the downside Thursday, with tech stocks leading the declines on reports that China plans to expand an iPhone ban to include state-owned firms. Shares of Apple fell almost 3%, following a 3.6% fall on Wednesday, its biggest two-day drop this year, that has wiped off more than $200 billion U.S. dollars from its valuation, leaving it with a market cap of $2.78 trillion. U.S. dollars. The stock, which has a large weighting in U.S. indices, helped push the Nasdaq Composite Index down for a Fourth consecutive session, it ended the day 0.9% lower at 13,749. The S&P 500 slipped a third of a percent to finish at 4,451. The Dow, though, added 58 points or 0.2% to settle at 34,501. Treasury yields moved lower after a surge on Wednesday in reaction to stronger-than-expected services data. The two-year yield fell eight basis points to 4.95%, giving up Wednesday's gains, while the 10-year was down five basis points at 4.25%. 
Bets that the resilient U.S. economy will give the Fed room to tighten policy further has put the U.S. dollar on index on track for its eighth consecutive week of gains, which will be its longest winning streak in data going back to 2015. The index rose 0.2% to above 105, and the PBOC moved to stabilise the weak yuan as the central bank set the daily fixing at a stronger-than-expected level for a record 54th straight day on Thursday. The currency hit a 16-year low of 7.3287 renminbi in Shanghai. In offshore markets, it broke below 7.34 renminbi to the dollar, trading as low as 7.34 and a quarter. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index fell for a third day, shedding 248 points, or 1.3%, to a six-week low of 18,202. The Hang Seng Tech Index was down 2%, and on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite lost 1.1% to 3,122. Chinese property developers saw extreme volatility as investors speculated about further real estate policy easing measures from Beijing. China Evergrande surged almost 30% at one stage after skyrocketing nearly 83% a day earlier, but it gave up all those gains to close the day flat. Sunak China jumped more than 21% after rallying 68% in the previous trading day, but it too shed all those gains to close almost 7% lower. China's biggest chip maker, SMIC, retreated from a two-month high, losing 7.6% after some U.S. lawmakers suggested greater curbs on the company over concerns it may have circumvented U.S. trade sanctions in making the chip inside Huawei's new Mate Pro smartphones. SMIC's peer, Huahong Semiconductor, slid 5.8%. Here in local markets, there is a black rainstorm warming warning in force. That means the opening of the Hong Kong Stock Exchange is going to be delayed. And if that black rainstorm warming warning is still in force at 9 o'clock, then the whole morning session will be cancelled. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Welcome our guests. We have with us in the studio John Schofield, who is Managing Director at Tempest Investment. Morning to you, John. Yes, hello. Good morning. Good morning. And also with us, we have Sunil Kashap, who is Director of FinMet. Morning to you, Sunil. Good morning. China reported Thursday another monthly decline in imports and exports, albeit less steep than expected. Exports from China dropped 8.8% year-on-year to 284 billion US dollars in August. That's after a 14.5% plunge in July, but it was better than forecasts of a 9.2% fall. This was the fourth straight month of decline in exports amid weakening global demand. Exports have fallen year-on-year for every month since April, as global demand for Chinese goods waned. And shipments to ASEAN, which is China's largest partner, fell 13.3% compared to a year earlier. Exports to the European Union dropped almost 20%. And shipments to the United States dropped for the 13th consecutive month, falling 9.5%. And imports to China, they declined by 7.3% compared with market estimates of a 9% drop. And after a 12.4% plunge a month earlier, imports have now fallen every month in 2023 from the year-ago period due to percent Consistently weak domestic demand. Um, John, what are your thoughts on this? And in particular, what, what's it telling us about, I suppose, both the state of the domestic economy on the mainland and also the global economy? Um, well, I think I think part of the part of the you know the the currency. Uh, uh, we know that Ch- China has been obviously the cur- currency is weak, but um, also the um, 
uh, price cutting on a lot of goods. So some of it's in terms of volume terms, I suspect um, I suspect the decline is not as not that big. Um, but in U.S. dollar terms, obviously, I mean we've still got a humongous, uh, and this is a sense of the problem that there's still a hum huge um, trade surplus in China. The balance of payments, uh, you know. Hundreds of billions every year. It's about one and a half percent of GDP, I think, isn't yes, it? Which is yeah. massive. And if you annualise it, it's uh, it is massive. So, um, on the one hand, we've got the the very weak domestic economy. On the other hand, we've got the um, the mercantilist uh, side of the economy, uh, which is um, both of which, in a sense, have reached uh, limits to growth, in my view, on a on a, on a long term view. Obviously, we've got the the, the debt crisis which um, signals an end really to the investment-led um, uh, you know savings uh, savings-led um, uh, growth in, in, in GDP um, we yet to see how that's going, going to work out uh, in the meantime we've got the um, you know the impending uh, the decoupling the de-risking um, increasingly pushed back I think we're going to see from uh, Europeans in particular to this uh, Flood of uh, flood of uh, cheap uh, motor vehicles, amongst other things, which are clearly challenging, uh, challenging the the German uh, economy uh, in particular. Mm. I've, I've got those numbers now on the trade surplus. In fact, I was too too low. Uh, China's trade surplus is equivalent to five and a half percent of GDP yeah. and about one point two percent of the rest of the world's GDP. So yes. they are enormous yeah. numbers, aren't they? Yes, I mean, so we're getting into, as I say, getting in territories where. You know the, the the sort of natural limits to growth have to have to um, have to kick in somehow. You know, the, mm. how can the rest of the world ab absorb uh, all this stuff? Sunil, what what are your thoughts? I mean, that, just mentioning yeah, I, on that trade surplus, it's enormous, isn't it? You know, it is. I mean, and it just shows that um, China continues to be uh, the factory of the world, uh, sort of. I think what what is you know in terms of some of the numbers of declining exports. What's actually happening is there's a lot of there's a change in the way manufacturing in terms of the supply chain is working out. Um, what seems to be happening is there's a lot of lot more products being exported from China, maybe semi-finished products from China to the Asian countries, to uh, places like Mexico and Latin America, uh, and then those products get completed. Uh, in terms of manufacturing in those uh, markets and then get exported to Europe and uh, the US uh, under the uh, under the logo of made in Mexico or made in Thailand or Vietnam etc uh, so the so because the last 20 10 20% of the product is the value added is done at at that third country location um, the exports from china have reduced in nominal terms and if you look at the pattern of exports also it's changed right the, the us is not the the biggest trading partner anymore for exports it's uh, it's asian countries and also in exports to mexico have increased quite a lot so i think uh, all in all some of the decline is because of that offshoring of um, some of the uh, supply chain value addition and on that point you made about uh, where these exports are going, there was a report on Wednesday by the U.S. Census Bureau. It showed China's share of U.S. goods imports fell to the lowest, lowest level since 2006 in the uh, in the year through to uh, July. So as American companies, they seem to be reorientating away from Chinese suppliers. Yeah. So that's really and to Mexico's your point. And Mexico's share has gone up. 
And, and Mexico, Mexico share has yeah. gone up. I think that's yeah. gone up to a record high, in fact. So there is a, a real change going on, isn't there? That's right. There's a, there's a change. Yeah. And, but then the interesting thing is, if you check, if you dig deeper, a lot of the manufacturing in Mexico or in Vietnam and Thailand is being done by companies owned by Chinese entrepreneurs. Mm. So ultimately what they're doing is just shifting part of the production uh, cycle to, uh, to other countries. Uh, yes, uh, yes, yes, that's yes, right. We've, we've, we've seen figures, seen figures that uh, uh, exports to those ASEAN countries have, have, uh, have increased quite, quite dramatically. That's been, um, uh, as you say, the, the real cause of that is not demand from those countries. Mm. I'm trying to look at this data. It's a sort of good news, bad news thing, isn't it? I, I suppose the good news is that um, trade is sort of contracting at a slower pace, although it's still going down. It's not going down as fast and maybe better than expectations. The bad news, though, is that it does still continue to, to contract and, um, you know, and, and it's not good news overall for the economy. Yes, as we see from the, you know, the latest thing with Apple and so on, the lack of reciprocity uh, by China to... Um, uh, for foreign uh, foreign manufacturers in China uh, and other businesses is um, is you know going to going to lead to f you know further de decoupling um, and this is a long term trend I'm sure. Mm. Sunil, I'm wondering how much um, external demand is going to play a factor um, here going forward. Do you, do you think China's tempted because it's struggling to get domestic demand going, is going to try and instead rely on once again becoming the factory of the world and exporting overseas? But is it going to struggle given that, uh, you know, overseas demand is not particularly strong either, is it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's two points there. Firstly, let's uh, look at the domestic demand. I mean, that's 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 the biggest concern for for the government. I mean, for over the last four or five years, even during COVID, uh, they've been trying to pivot away from being an export-led economy to a being domestic consumption-led economy in services, etc. And while there was some growth uh, around the time of COVID or before COVID. But what we've seen after that is has been very disappointing, and then there's a, there's a real crisis of confidence taking place amongst the Chinese consumer because they can see, uh, you know, the obliteration of of stock prices, real estate prices, all kinds of asset uh, pricing um, deflation is taking place. Uh, so that is an issue. Uh, the, you know, the, the the lack of domestic demand is an issue. And now, what is the government focused on? I mean, do they start? ignoring that and trying to focus on the export side uh, at a time when the world seems to be uh, you know entering into a slowdown i think that's it's a major challenge for them it's it's something they can't control mm. i mean the only way they can control is maybe reduce prices use the devaluation de de of their currency and try to push product but at this time the mood in the world towards china is not as positive as it was for example in 2013 14 and so it's going to be more difficult for um, the Chinese uh, exporters to to win back market share. The mercantilist uh, uh, model has also reached its its limits. So um, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the government is really making that much effort to stimulate, um, you know, consumer consumer demand. Um, as you say, uh, Sunil, quite rightly, it's, it's it's very difficult in this environment with. Uh, you know the debt, um, the debt crisis, and so on, um, and the only way around that is to really start, you know, printing money, and part of that does involve devaluing the, the currency, um, and trying to get cash flow flowing through the, through the. Uh, but structurally, you know, with only 38% of 
uh, of GDP being due to the consumer, which is you know barely half uh, what it is in the United States, for example, um, it's it's very difficult to get that um, get that growing. Once you've got a low base, so once you get once you get the a sort of circle, uh, a virtuous circle, in, in it could it could uh, recover quite quickly. But then again, you come against the philosophical um, um, problems the party have. They don't want a consumerist-type society. And they don't want to provide um, a social welfare net. Um, it's well known that Xi Jinping is against that kind of thing. So um, with, that, uh, with that background, what, what, what they can do in practical terms is, is necessarily limited. Mm. Sunil, do, do you think this um, plays into the Fed's thinking at all? Because I mean, it must have a bit of a dilemma at the moment because the US economy is looking pretty strong, isn't it? We saw that ISM services data uh, yesterday, which was better than expected, but it's now facing a Eurozone that looks like it's going to slip into uh, recession. Um, a Chinese economy that's looking quite weak and uh, is facing the problems of really weak domestic demand. Does this influence the, fle- uh, the Fed? Yeah, I think it will. I think, uh, you know, and also if you look at the central bank action of a lot of the central banks around the world, Australia recently, uh, New Zealand earlier, um, the everyone's keeping their local interest rates uh, on hold. Um, and I think that's a recognition of the fact that a lot of the central banks around the, uh, around the world feel their own economies are, are sort of uh, peaked and uh, therefore they they don't want to risk further increases so uh, I'm quite positive that uh, Fed's going to keep that in uh, in in their mind I think the local price inflation and local recent data has been positive uh, in terms of pushing people towards thinking about the Fed increasing rates uh, but I think the overall picture and certainly China gives them quote unquote an excuse uh, to not to raise uh, this time in September, uh, and it's going to play. Uh, it's going to play into their uh, thinking in terms of what they do long term, because um, you know the US dollar is really now quite a quite high compared to the rest of the world. Uh, yes, I think that's where it's uh, showing up. U- US is uh, you know uniquely positioned really because it's got um, it's got all its own. Uh, Resources self-sufficient, uh, particularly in energy uh, these days, and and there are, there are for some reason the crude oil prices, uh, as you know, has rallied uh, quite a lot in recent weeks. Uh, to what extent that's manipulation by Russia and Saudi and OPEC, um, who have an inc- you know a declining share of, uh, of of the world world market, uh, remains to be seen. But there are the the other the there's still residual inflation. Effects in in uh, in Europe, uh, UK, for example, and um, you know, but on, on the Fed, it seems to be coming down quite quickly, uh, despite these, um, despite the the, the um, uh, these robust uh, job data. So I, I think it's finally balanced for the US. Um, I, I agree; they may they may well hold in September at least and see see how things go. Sunil, a question I've been asking all week. Why is China avoiding using its big bazooka to go and spur the economy in maybe the way that it did after the global financial crisis, where it really did step in big time, didn't it, to stimulate uh, domestic demand and to stimulate the economy? It seems very, very reluctant to do that this time around. Why is that? Uh, the, the fear is that you use the bazooka and it has unintended consequences. I think uh, you know this particular 
regime is very careful about uh, controlling the way um, the economy and the society uh, moves forward. And using a bazooka to create um, situations like local uh, service demand or a sudden skew in uh, money supply um, will will may create social unrest and so that's why they that's the last thing they want so i think in this situation economics is taking uh, a backseat towards uh, compared to politics or compared to the parties um uh, parties sort of view of keeping control of what happens in 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 the chinese economy uh, yes, uh, yes um, I think uh, a lot of commentators have, have pointed out that the the, the pre previous bazookas were really directed at the you know st um, the the investment led uh, growth model, so just increasing fixed asset investment. Um, obviously, in in the case of property, that's um, that's now at a complete dead end. Uh, even in terms of the infrastructure, you know, they've built out as much as they can. Um, you know, and the, and the, the incremental gains from further, you know, road and, and railway buildings are, are, are very limited at the margin. Um, so, um, you know, that's the, the only one hopes to see over over time is is a gradual shift away from uh, away from uh, fixed asset investment to, towards um, towards the consumer and ha and household um, income generation. Um, but that's, uh, as I say, the politics seem to be getting in the way of that at the moment. Now, shares of Apple fell 3% Thursday after a 3.6% drop Wednesday. That's the most in a month after reports that China had ordered officials at central government agencies to not use iPhones and other foreign branded devices for work. Employees at some Chinese central government regulators received instructions to stop bringing the gadgets into the office, according to the Wall Street Journal. And the directive is the latest step in Beijing's campaign to cut reliance on foreign technology and enhance cybersecurity. And it comes as China seeks to limit flows of sensitive information outside of China's borders. And Bloomberg News reported yesterday <coughs> that China plans to expand the ban on the use of iPhones to government-backed agencies and state-owned uh, companies. And the move by Beijing could have a chilling effect for foreign brands in China, including Apple. The iPhone maker dominates the high-end smartphone market in the country and counts China as one of its biggest markets, relying on it for about 19% of its overall revenue. Sunil, this is a problem clearly for Apple, but also it's more worrying overall, isn't it, in that it just seems that the protectionism of not just China, but the US uh, to protect their own markets, to put restrictions on trade just seems to be getting worse uh, honestly I, I agree and but I, honestly I'm surprised it took them this long if you think back you know they started with if uh, with the US uh, telling uh, all government officials uh, and uh, Congress um, congressmen Senate etc saying that they should not have TikTok on their government phones right and uh, at that time uh, China didn't react so, you know, this has been going on. It actually started uh, a lot uh, from the West. And so China is just reacting to that. So I, I'm not surprised by it. I think it's, uh, you know, it's just an escalation of uh, the situation of the decoupling that we've been talking about or de-risking. Um, and so um, 
It is what it is. It's 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 to be expected uh, that China would react in this way. Yes, but uh, haven't haven't uh, China also put a lot of restrictions on software uh, software um, tech uh, U.S. software tech in uh, in in China. Well, but anyway, you're, you're quite right. So we're we're in a sort of tit for tat uh, kind of uh, situation, I think. Here, um, um, you know, I'm not. So it's so much um, so difficult is because um, while Google was restricted, Apple was not, and a lot of the information that people use on Apple phones is kept on the iCloud, um, and that's where uh, you know the U.S. Because of the U.S. government laws, has would have access to uh, the information on uh, on iCloud for national security purposes. Uh, so, I think uh, the, you know it's, it is it is to be expected. It's not unusual that you would in this environment uh, government would do that. But uh, yes, it's it's also not helpful for Chinese uh, you know employment in in China, obviously. Apple have to start cutting back production and, and, and things like that. So, yeah, it's all part of this, um, you know, this ongoing, um, yeah, de de risking. I suppose in this sense, you could say it's de risking in terms of the digital uh, digital space. I suppose, Sunu, I know you say you're not surprised by this, or at least surprised that it hasn't happened earlier. But the one thing is that you know there are large American companies like Apple that don't share the same fervor that the Biden administration has for putting restrictions on trade. And, and Apple in particular has been a very big investor in China, one of the biggest. It employs a lot of local Chinese people um, at, at its factories. And it's sort of like, you know, been doing what Beijing has been asking companies to do, which is to sort of act independently of their of their government. So are you a bit surprised that, you know, they've done this to, to Apple, which is, you know, could backfire on it yeah i understand i think that's why it took them so long to, to come up with the decision but as of now what i understand is it's restricted to government devices and government officials right so what what may happen in uh, in reality is that some of the government officials may keep their personal devices uh, as uh, iphones and then have a separate device which is a a local device for the government uh, uses so uh, i mean I know that uh, it's you know it's something that, that they must have pondered over, but it, I think honestly for their own national security, um, it's uh, it, it's 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 to be expected because there have been cases and they've been documented in the last couple of years where um, the devices of uh, some Chinese government officials, um, iPhone devices, uh, have been have been seized by the uh, Western. Uh, agencies and uh, information has been downloaded from that. So I think uh, you know China, the Chinese government does have reason to be concerned for its own security purposes and to to implement this. Uh, and remember, it's, it is for government devices and government officials using uh, using it for official purposes. But if it, if it gets extended, as Bloomberg is reporting, to state-owned enterprises, that's a real big step up, isn't it, on the uh, on the restrictions? Correct, and 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 in knowing what China is, you know, you'll have maybe some private sector who may uh, show their nationalistic colours and say we were implementing the same ban. So I, I agree that the impact on Apple is going to be considerable, uh, but uh, given the the environment we're in, um, I think uh, it's uh, it's to be expected. What may happen is you may have a negotiated settlement where. Um, 
you know, the U.S. government steps down in some of its restrictions on TikTok and other Chinese uh, tech companies uh, as a quid pro quo, uh, China doing the same for, for iPhone. So you may get into those kind of situations. Yes, that's a, that's a, that's a thought. Certainly if, uh, you know, 50% of the Chinese economy is not allowed to use Apple, that will be a, that will be a, a, a big restriction. Perhaps they could somehow um, do a sort of firewall in the sky and have the you know have uh, <laughs> all data from china sources was um you know stored on a in a cloud you know accessible to the chinese government that's a novel idea oh. a firewall in the sky yes. <laughs> yes, apple's exactly. got another threat though at the moment hasn't it this is coming from huawei their new mate 60 prone which is a uh, pro phone which has just sold out they've been selling like hotcakes has um very high speed capabilities download speeds of 500 to 800 megabytes so you can basically download a movie in high definition people are wondering where um huawei got the chips to be able to do this and it looks like they came from smic which means that smic is really finding ways of of circumventing uh, the, these trade restrictions uh, from the from the US, but this is quite interesting, isn't it, John? Because it basically um, th- this phone, this new phone that Huawei has developed, isn't subject to sanctions. Has nothing to do with Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing. Nothing to do with any Western semiconductor tool manufacturer. Nothing to do with US patents. It really is a homegrown phone. Um, well, some of the restrictions on exports to China haven't even come in yet. Uh, I believe they're about to. Um, and there was reported a surge of uh, imports, surge of demand for uh, chip-producing uh, equipment from from the West, I presume, from ASML and people like that um, earlier this this year. So I think they've been able to they've been able to build up um, the equipment and the expertise and using it to this extent. Um, what is it? Seven seven nano. I, I'm slightly out of my depth here technically, but I believe. Apple and so on are on to three the nano. So and the question is, um, so the idea is that they won't be able to get their hands on the on the the very latest uh, equipment from now on uh, that would enable them to to get to get to that that step. But um, you know, it's probably very porous. So Neil, what what do you make of that? I mean, is uh, is you know maybe these uh, these sanctions on high technology? There, um, China's getting around them much quicker than people thought, and it's not going to put their development back as as much as the Biden administration was hoping for. Yeah, I think you know we've seen sanctions are are, are quite a blunt tool. So, uh, and they, you know, not all countries around the world, uh, industrialized countries, are hundred percent behind the U.S. sanctions on, on China. So you do have uh, leaks taking place. So I think that's, that's, going to, that's going to be expected. Finally, let me get uh, thoughts from both of you um, on the markets. A couple of big things going on at the moment. First of all, oil um, above uh, $90 a barrel, or it did fall back a little bit um, overnight, but earlier this week uh, hit $90 um, a barrel. Also, the, the weakness in the Chinese yuan at a 16-year 16, um, 16 low. I mean, first of all, John, on the, on the oil fronts, how, how big a problem is this? Oil heading to $100 by the looks of it. Um, well, I'm, I'm not sure about that. I'd, it's su- surprising. Normally what happens when OPEC uh, cuts production, somebody else steps up and uh, steps up to the plate and increases production. Uh, I'm not sure why, why that hasn't happened yet. Maybe there's still lags, um, 
you know, because of the decommissioning of bricks. But it's um, uh, probably more important to focus on the on the gas price, the, natu- the Henry Hub natural gas price, which is now at the, you know very cheap levels to two dollar fifty and between two dollar fifty two dollar eighty, compared with uh, ten dollars or, or more uh, during the, um, the the COVID uh, pandemic. Um, and that's where the U.S. of course comes in because uh, the, the U.S. fracking and so on, they're, they're, producing, uh, they're producing plenty for the U.S. market and, for, and increasingly for export, uh, including to, to Europe. Um, but it's obviously still a, it's a short, so I suspect it's a blip, this, uh, this blip in the crude oil price, but, um, but you never know. It is, it is going to be a problem. Again, the inflation data in in, in Europe and, and the UK is, is not going to maybe not come down as fast as um, as fast as it was expected to do. Um, gasoline prices in in, in the UK have uh, reported to have jumped, I think, twenty or thirty percent. You know, just in the last couple of months. Sunil, how big a problem is ninety dollar ninety dollar a barrel? Yeah, it's it's a problem. Uh, it's a problem. I think, but I agree with John. It's going to be a blip. I think uh, you know you have to wait for the demand side. Uh, to react to this. And this is going to be a trigger, I think, for a lot of people to just tighten their belts. Um, so demand is going to come off substantially um, because the, the mood overall in in the West, uh, especially in Europe and in US, uh, on the ground amongst the consumer is not so positive. Con- customer confidence is quite low. So I think this is just going to be a trigger where people say, okay, fine, I have to now really take steps to to reduce my uh, usage of, of, of uh, gas and and um, and reduce my energy needs. And so you're going to see a reaction. It'll just be delayed a bit, but um, the demand side is going to come off. And Sunil, let me ask you also about the currency, the US dollar on track for now the eighth week of gains, the Chinese yuan sinking towards a 16-year low, slightly surprising the strength of the US dollar in the sense that, you know, it's widely expected that the Fed is going to be on hold um, later on this month. But I guess this is reflecting the fact that uh, the US economy looks like it's doing far better than both the Eurozone and and the Chinese economy. Yeah, and also the data recently has been uh pointing towards uh you know uh, as higher strength and so maybe the fed may increase so that kind of rumors have come in uh, but i like we discussed i think it's unlikely the fed's going to do that i think the fed is is going to announce that they're holding steady for now and so this 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 dollar strength which has been has been has come in in the last week in this week actually is is going to come off a bit it's it's because it's it's this, the dollar strength is across the board across all the currencies and mm. um and i think it's going to come off it's just been a, a initial sort of effervescence after seeing the good data of this mm. week yeah and i think on the nevertheless on the long term the, the, the fact that investors can get um uh, a much better return on their on their money, whether it's in in equities or in bonds. Now, um, is uh, you know long term uh, bullish factor for 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 the U.S. dollar. Um, I'll also point out we still haven't reached levels that we reached last. Um, I think it was October, wasn't it? The P, the previous dollar rally. We're still some way below those, uh, and um, you know everything that's happened since then only emphasises the relative strength of. U.S. Um, financial markets, economy, uh, and therefore, therefore the um, therefore the currency. The interest rate differentials have narrowed a bit in some places, particularly with with 
with Europe and so on, but um, it looks like that interest rate differential is going to be maintained, and particularly against the Japanese yen. Well, you know, how, how can you possibly argue for a, a, a stronger yen when the, the interest rate differential is 5%? Okay, well, thank you both very much. Have a great weekend. Stay safe in the black rain. This That was John Schofield, who's Managing Director at Tempest Investment. Sunil Kashap, who is Director of FinMet. I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby. Good morning, Peter. Now, the Reserve Bank of Australia left interest rates on hold for a third straight month. The cash rate is at 4.1%. That was pretty much in line with market expectations. Although, Toby, looking through what they said afterwards um, and and the statement, it was a fairly hawkish hold, wasn't it? They were indicating that rates may still have to go up more. Yeah, I think that um, one of the big concerns for the Reserve Bank is Growth slowing. So we saw the GDP figures uh, during the week. You know, uh, growth around 0.4 percent for the quarter, just over two percent for for a year on year, um, and clearly a decline overall in uh, the level of activity. But what is concerning the most is that some of the price pressures are still fairly sticky, and this is not inconsistent around the world. But for Australia, uh, it's productivity which is um, declining. Um, and if you look at the GDP per hour worked, which is an interesting indicator of productivity, it felt like 2% quarter on quarter, um, quite significant. And this is the area which suggests that if your unit labour costs continue to rise and there is some pressure on actual wages but also productivity, then it's going to be much more difficult for the central bank to to control inflation uh, and ultimately to bring it down. So I think the, the message from the Reserve Bank is... Um, uh, more hawkish than possibly the economic data would suggest. And that's a function probably of structural pro- productivity weakness that needs to be shifted. Mm. And, and meanwhile, the Australian economy, as you said, it, it's, it's really growing below trend at the moment, isn't it? Although although GDP was advancing, um, it, it's definitely sort of slowing. And unemployment's there. They're for, forecasting that to, to rise as well next year. Yeah, overall, Australia is structurally pretty sound. You know, um, uh, we say it's a bit of done luck. Australia tends to do pretty well. Now, on the horizon, of course, you've got China. Um, uh, the, the the economy there is slowing. So that has a, a, an impact on, on the trade sector for Australia. But the other positive that's sort of structural in terms of economics is the migration numbers. Um, so uh, we tend to benefit and we will continue to benefit from an inflow of population um, that drives GDP. So if you look at it on a per capita basis, our growth's not so strong and potentially could be technically in in, an, in a recession. Um, but uh, that's um, somewhat mitigated by the fact that, you know, we're getting two or 300,000 people coming through the gates in the next couple of years, and that drives GDP. So structurally, we're probably got a bit of a tailwind, um, but uh, productivity is, a, is definitely a concern that um, the central bank... Um, have identified, uh, which suggests that they're going to keep the pressure on rates. Even if they don't raise them, they're likely to stay higher for longer. And what are exports looking like with China? Relations have improved a bit, haven't they, over recent sort of weeks and months between the two countries. Is that being reflected? Is trade picking up? Yeah, I think, well, overall trade numbers will be softer because of, of China's growth. But yes, there's definitely been a thawing in the relationship uh, between Australia and China. Um, such that even uh, overnight announcement that uh, uh, that for the first time in seven years that the Prime Minister will be visiting China and visiting the President Xi 
Uh, I think it's around December. I think that came out overnight in terms of news. So, yeah, definitely a thawing in the relationship. I think this is probably mutual. I think uh, the government's uh, approach towards China um, had softened uh, with the change of government. And at the same time, China, I think, has opened up itself a little bit more to dialogue with Australia. So together, hopefully, that'll continue and uh, will obviously be reflected in in our trade and uh, and various other um, elements of the relationship. Now, let's switch our attentions to the G20, which is taking place this weekend in New Delhi in India. I suppose the main news from this is the the absence of President Xi Jinping, who has decided um, he's not going to attend and has sent uh, Premier Li Jiang instead to uh, to represent him. How much does this devalue the G20 or, or reduces the chances of, of anything getting done or being agreed? Yeah, no China, no Russia means um, no consensus and no statement um, from the G20. So clearly um, it'll have an impact in terms of what output comes from the G20 and it fairly well um, aligns the separation between those countries that are, you know, G20 um, solid and those that are more heading towards maybe a BRICS type alternate arrangement and that's been China and Russia. I mean, Russia we know, of course, uh, impacted by you know their exclusion around the Ukrainian situation. But the China one is probably a reflection um, too of, of positioning by China to the extent of trying to set, you know move away somewhat of the G20. But at the same time, I think uh, given the domestic issues uh, in the country, um, it may be such that you know, uh, Xi wants to stay close to the domestic uh, situation in China and not necessarily put themselves out externally. Mm. That's one factor. But clearly, um, there seems to be a separation between uh, those that want to be in G20 and those that want to shift to another group. Mm. And that other group presumably would be BRICS, which would uh, China yeah. would like to be the leader of. That's right, and 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 the interesting thing is, it's being it's 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 being held in India, and India being on both in both a foot in both camps, um, for want of a better expression, it's a very important time for India to to show solidarity and to sort of bring the noise down and to try to be a, a mediator across both the West and and uh, and China and Russia. So a really important meeting, um, but without China and Russia there, the output. Uh, from a public perspective, will be minimal because uh, it needs a consensus for any statement to be delivered and it won't happen. This is a big moment for India, isn't it? Because I don't think there's ever been a time before where so many world leaders have been in India at the same time. And also, it's a good opportunity for India to promote how its economy is doing and how its development is going. So this is uh, quite a pivotal moment, moment for India. Yeah, I think it's a huge success for for the political leadership of Modi, uh, and uh, you know certainly the BJP have 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 used this opportunity of of international leadership to promote um, you know the strength of the Modi government and the strength of the BJP across uh, India. And I think you know the use of the G20. I think they've had something like fifty different states visited from various groups associated with G20. So they've really taken advantage of of the publicity that that gives. Um, India is on the map. I think uh, clearly wants the West wants India to be a, a key ally in the region, and uh, so from that perspective, it's really a good moment for India to shine. Um, notwithstanding that it has its own issues, and you know the, the 
those who criticise India can have plenty of arguments around, you know, the sort of you know, um, whitewashing of, of what's happening uh, on the ground versus what they mm. present to the world. But this is not unusual. Um, and uh, this is an opportunity for India to really shine across the, you know, across the globe. It'll be interesting to see if India can get consensus on on some things, because even though there's the friction between the US and China and US and Russia, there are things you would think that maybe they could agree on, like debt relief, climate change. Also, they want to um, admit the African Union to become a permanent member of the Group of 20 in the same way that the EU is. So presumably there could be some successes there. uh, And a lot of this is going to be down to, to India's powers of persuasion. I suspect you're right. I think uh, you know, climate change will be one. I think that you know, they definitely can get some consensus um, there. Um, uh, obviously, um, G20 supporting um, emerging countries and, and uh, facilitation there. I think the African Union is an interesting one. I'm not sure how that'll go. But uh, you're right. I think um, there will be some opportunities to show uni- you know, a unified stance, particularly, and I think climate change is obviously an obvious one that, you know, with the the hottest summer on record in in Europe, um, it's very much a focus of the world, uh, and uh, so this will be an opportunity for G20 to show leadership. And also, it's an opportunity, isn't it, for President Biden? Because with Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin not being there, presumably he can hold out some olive branches to some of those countries that have been looking to forge closer ties with China. And I'm thinking of countries like Brazil, South Africa, Indonesia, even India itself, all countries that also haven't really taken a position on Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Maybe this is an opportunity there for for President Biden. I think that's, yeah, that'll be an opportunity to show it in a public forum. I think behind the scenes there's clearly been a lot of uh, work done by the West in terms of trying to shore up those relationships and trying to ensure that they're singing from the same song sheet. So, yeah, it's an opportunity for Biden to be standing shoulder to shoulder with some of these other world leaders. Um, uh, But as I suspect, the meeting will be one that will be limited to consensus on topics that don't, um, necessarily create con- controversy for China mm. and Russia. Mm. Um, but uh, you're right, uh, it's a good opportunity for, for public show of you know, unification. Now, let's turn our attention to the markets. A few important things going on. First of all, um, Apple um, lost 6% over the last couple of days. There's about $200 billion in uh, in market cap, although it's still got about two and three quarter trillion dollars left. But nevertheless, this news that uh, China is restricting iPhone uses in government departments and may also extend that ban to state-owned enterprises as well is, is quite a big blow for Apple, isn't it? Because almost a fifth of its revenues come from China. But also, it seems to send out a bad signal that protectionism and, and relations between the US and China seem to be worsening. I think they've been working on this in China for quite a while. Um, so it's it, it's news as in, uh, I think they've been looking to, to you know, secure their communications environment internally. Um, somewhat similar, I guess, you could say that other nations trying to block Chinese technology at times. So it's a surprise in so much as the announcement caused the share price to drop because it hadn't been priced in, but not a surprise that it's happened. Um, For Apple, uh, you know, clearly there's an opportunity to pivot into India and there's been a lot of push from from, uh, the CEO and uh, and Apple to to get more presence in India. So there's uh, one strategy to try to, to adapt to the changing uh, geopolitical climate uh, with China, um, so yeah, that's one of one of concern. I think a broader measure of 
of, of the relationship between the West and China, you know, it's probably just another example. Uh, but I don't think it's new news. It's something that China's been working on for quite a while. Uh, and to be fair, so Western governments in terms of trying to block Chinese technology. Okay, and a couple of other things I just wanted to get your your thoughts on. $90 oil. Um, some analysts say we're mm. going to have $100 uh, per barrel oil. This is a headache for central banks, isn't it? It is a significant contributor to inflation. Uh, um, Supply-demand impact, obviously Saudi and Russia uh, announcing their supply curbs has done the trick. Um, that's tricked it up over that 80 mark and, uh, and now, as you say, printing through 90. I think it's a, it, it has a lag effect, I guess, um, although um, you know, what it does is it just suggests that the ability of central banks to bring inflation back down to target is going to take longer when you have uh, this type of uh, move on on one of the key price inputs to to just about everything. So yeah, we'll be watching it closely, and um, uh, it's it's a uh, you know anything through a hundred uh, then starts to get the zeitgeist and the press, uh, and that'll be something to keep an eye on. And what about the US dollar on track now for its eighth week of gains? That's the longest winning streak since 2015, combined with the Chinese renminbi, which is sinking to a 16-year um, low. Nothing seems to be able to stop the dollar at the moment, not even the, the prospect of uh, the Fed being on hold. But presumably this is coming about because of all the recent data that we've seen out of the US, which is showing the economy there looking stronger than, uh, than thought. Yeah, that's true. I think, uh, you know, the uh, equity market's starting to feel a little pressure from particularly in the growth sector around higher rates that uh, could happen. I think people, you know, looking at ISM, um, looking at the jobless figures in the labour market overnight, it suggests that the economy's still got plenty in it, um, at least for the moment. And the lag impact of these higher rates hasn't necessarily um, hit the economy as people have expected. So there's a repricing of risk um, in relation to debt uh, and so I think in that regard, higher rates potential in the US or at least higher rates for longer in the US is reflecting in bond yields and also in the dollar. Um, and of course, then against that, as you say, you've got the you know, Chinese uh, yuan, you've got the yen um, uh, and uh, and the euro, uh, euro being an economy that's probably struggling a little bit, particularly with Germany as a lead and contributed to the softness. These all lead to stronger US dollar prospects. Toby, thank you very much indeed. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Dickie Wong, who's Head of Research at Kingston Securities. And providing a view from mainland China will be Yan Wu, the Chairman and CEO of Surfing Group. Have a great weekend. Money Talk.